my first partner uh, in business completely screwed me over, stole everything, physical property, intellectual property, property launched, you know, as, as if I had nothing to do with the process. Welcome to another episode of How Musicians Make It. My name's Adam, and I'll be your host. This is a show about artistry and industry and music, and we recently changed our name. So if you are familiar with the Gig Boss podcast, that was us. Now, we're How Musicians Make It. And on this show, we talk to artists and industry professionals, and I talk about everything I've learned as a musician over the last 15 years playing professionally in a lot of different contexts. And like everybody I talk to on this show, my career is going to look different than your career, and your career is going to look different than everybody I talk to. If you don't know, the podcast is brought to you by Gig Boss. Gig Boss is my company. It's an app that's an organizational tool for musicians. I encourage you to check it out and use it. For me, the most difficult part about being a musician has been organizing my schedule and organizing my finances, and this basically takes care of that nugget, that problem. Right? I've talked to a lot of musicians who are like, yo, I don't need more gigs, and I know some of you are like, I do need more gigs. But I've talked to a lot of musicians that are in my shoes that are like, I don't need more gigs necessarily. I just need a secretary. I need a way to track everything. I need a way to communicate to people. And so Gig Boss, that's why we built it. It can be found on iOS and Android, and it's totally free as of now. Thank you for coming back. I know it's been a bit of a break. Uh, it's been summertime, and I've been out playing a whole bunch of music with a lot of people, and I just needed a break. I needed a break from doing this. And I mentioned I had an episode on the show called How to Fall in Love with Music Again, and I mentioned taking a break. And that's certainly what I needed with the podcast. I needed some time. But during that time, I did do some interviews. So I just thought, like, you know, we're we're coming up at the end of the summer here, and I'll bring you a few interviews in a row here that uh, are really fantastic, and then we'll keep rolling with the show. Those of you who've been listening, you've probably been checking out the... 17 Singles in 17 Weeks campaign that I was running with Lulu's Playground. And that got crazy. I mean, that was like, we were up to 6,000 monthly listeners at one point. Uh, The songs were all hitting Spotify algorithmic playlists. And then the songs that didn't get past that certain threshold of listens in the first couple of days in order to get it shoved onto Spotify algorithmic playlists those songs ended up not getting many plays. So it's, it's kind of a wild world out there. And I think one of the things that I learned from that, and I bet people are curious because I'm, I'm sorry that I took so much time off. I was going to continue updating about that, but it just got too nuts. Here, here's what I learned from that. You can release things in an advantageous way. You can release things in a way that will encourage Spotify to put your songs onto algorithmic playlists. Really, this this whole thing was about algorithmic playlists. I was hoping I would get placed on an editorial releasing 17 singles, but I was placed mostly on algorithmic playlists. The page basically went from zero monthly listeners to six over 6,000. So it was, I think, a huge success uh, when you look at it that way. But if you go to the page now, you'll see that we've got about 105 or something monthly listeners uh, that are still hanging around after our 17-week campaign. So would I call that a success? I don't know. Like a whole bunch of people heard our music. It was cool to have a little bit of buzz about the band again. Did a ton of people come and like like the page? No. Some people did. Uh, so followers increased for sure. Monthly listeners have increased because we went from zero to 6,000 and now we're hovering around a little over 100. Would I do 17 in a row again? No. So that's the thing that really... To me, like that's the thing that was the most revealing was that 
sustaining the energy of promoting a release every week for 17 weeks was really tough, especially because I had other gigs to promote that I had going on. I was like learning parts for bands and going out on the road and playing a bunch. And it was just hard to like every Friday be like, I got to post about this. I got to remind my fans. I got to send emails out. Right. So it was just tough to keep up with it. If I were to do it again, I might say like, yeah, maybe 10 singles, you know, over 10 weeks could work or seven singles over seven weeks, you know, 17 was like a lot. It was a lot. And it was really the early part of the campaign that got a lot of traction. If you're thinking about doing a bunch of short songs like those were, that could be an option. Maybe don't, maybe don't pin yourself down to, to, you know, 15, 20 tracks, but do it over the course of seven to 10 weeks. And that's a bit more sustainable, especially if you don't have a whole lot going on otherwise. I also like released a couple singles in there with other people on my other pages. So it's just a lot. It was a lot for people who follow me to, to take in. And you can't expect everybody to go over there and, and check out every single track, right? But I do think there's some tracks on there that would be great for sync licensing. And I'm sending that stuff over to somebody at Marmoset Music this week. I've been emailing with him a little bit just to be like, hey, can I send you some stuff? Uh, and he said, cool, send me some stuff, send me some links. So I'm going to do that. And that's kind of the way to, to get things, you know, started with getting connected with sync licensing folks. All right. Um, I could probably do a whole episode on a reflection on that like 17 singles, 17 weeks campaign. And maybe I will do that. But today I want to bring you this interview with Adam Rappa. Now, Adam Rappa is like a virtuoso instrumentalist. He's one of the great, great trumpet players alive today. He's a bit of a controversial figure in the trumpet circle, but my interactions with him have all been awesome. And I have a buddy who works for his company, Lotus, which is becoming a quickly growing trumpet company. Rap is just like this trumpet whisperer. He's like, he knows what to tell people to get them to play at their best. Trumpet's a, a mysterious instrument in some ways. It's really physical and it's a lot about physics as well and he just has a way of speaking that language so plainly and clearly uh that i think people are attracted to him and his teaching and i think overall like their social media game has really blown up even though rapper kind of like you know he'll, he'll say himself that he's not great at at uh doing social media stuff but he had a really he's had a really interesting career up to this point and he's hit a lot of roadblocks like places where he was broke and he couldn't afford to fund recording projects even though he'd had a lot of success as a musician he toured around he toured around with blast uh which was a really cool show was kind of featured as a soloist there so you know he had that happening and was touring and, and kind of learned how to handle the tour life maintaining health and wellness while you're on the road all that stuff. so we talk about that a little bit but the the thing that I really enjoyed talking to him about was how he was in this place of like I don't have any money I'm just trying to trying to make my bills and play some trumpet and at that time was when he decided, I got to start a trumpet company. And that's a huge idea. That's, a, that's an expensive idea. And now it's become this thing that uh, it's like a catalyst for him to be able to be a trumpet artist. It's like starting that company because there are now resources. It took a time for him to get there, which he'll talk about. But because there are now resources, he can use that as a way to get out into the world, do recording projects, play his horn, book some things, and we're going to start seeing that stuff pop up in the near future. 
So I thought it was a cool time to interview him. I, I stopped by the International Trumpet Guild Conference, which was happening in Minneapolis. I played some of their their horns. Uh, my buddy Charlie, who I tour with in Youngblood Brass Band, works for Lotus. So Charlie was there. Charlie walked me through a whole bunch of their horns and their mouthpieces, and it was really fun. I play on a Lotus L2 mouthpiece. And I have to say, like, I know a lot of people listen to the show that aren't trumpet players, and I do occasionally interview trumpet players. I want you to know that his career is fascinating, and you're going to learn a lot just from hearing him speak. He's really a dynamic speaker. There's information for everybody here. We don't get into the weeds with trumpet and trumpet playing. I am not particularly into trumpet gear. Personally, it's like, for me, trumpet is like this means to an end. It's, it's, a, it's a tool that I use to make art. Uh, I, I don't consider myself only a trumpet player. So I consider myself to be a multi-instrumentalist and artist that sings and plays trumpet and plays guitar and plays piano and plays drums and plays and plays bass. So I don't get deep into like the trumpet nerdum world. Uh, before we start with the interview with Rappa, I just want to let you know that my orchestra, my 18-piece orchestra, the Adam Eckler Orchestra, we had a, a record called When the Clouds Look Like This in 2014. iTunes listed as one of the best jazz releases of 2014. But my orchestra also like mixes hip hop and R and B and pop music into this like traditional looking ensemble. This this ensemble that looks like what you imagine a jazz big band would look like, uh, but it doesn't really sound a whole lot like you know Glenn Miller or you know Duke Ellington even Count Basie. It's like Ellington Basie Mingus big band. Those are some of my favorite big bands. My band doesn't really sound like that. Uh, Maria Schneider. So there's elements of those things, certainly. There's elements of the, the classic stuff, but there's a lot of like forward-thinking, modern-sounding stuff, and we're playing at Crooners in Minneapolis August 4th, Friday, August 4th. I'll put the ticket link in the description along with the other links for Adam Rappa's stuff. You guys could come out and hear what I do in real life. I'll be playing my horn. I'll be standing in front of my band. We'll be playing all my original compositions. It's a huge production. We're filming it. We're recording it. Uh, so this is one of the things I think about too as an artist is like, how do I maximize each opportunity I have, especially since I live remotely now and I have to travel into cities to play or I have to fly somewhere to go on tour. You know, how do I maximize those moments? And so I'm filming and recording the whole show and I'll use that stuff as internet fodder, right? I'll use that stuff to just be like, look, I'm still around. I'm still doing this stuff. And please ask me to write a commission for your band or something, which is one of the ways that composers make money. So if you're a composer in the classical music sense or the jazz music sense, there's certainly a lot that I've dealt with that you could relate to in the world of that. But I'm also doing a lot of other stuff. I'm, I'm playing with Steve Cole's band coming up in mid-August at the Ames Center in Minneapolis. Steve Cole's this great smooth jazz tenor player, funk, funk and smooth jazz. He was on the show, actually, because he's the head of music business at St. Thomas University. Basically was like a famous smooth jazz saxophone player in like the 90s and 2000s. Still crushing it. Still crushing the Spotify game. Go check out his Spotify numbers. They were stupid. So I'm playing with Steve Cole and doing a little recording session with my buddy Scott Extra, who played trombone on all that Nookie Jones stuff. He's writing a bunch of funk horn stuff that I'm going to play lead trumpet on, which has been a really fun challenge. It's like, you know. I'm not playing full-time anymore, uh, so really making sure that my stuff's in shape, shedding all the time. I'm really getting that routine now and getting down to business so that I can be sharp uh, playing Scott's music, playing Steve's music, playing my own music coming up in about a week. So August 4th is the Adam Eckler Orchestra at Crooners. August 2, I think it's 17th at the Ames Center in Minneapolis with Steve Cole, and then I'm in North Carolina with Steve Cole in November. So if you're a North Carolina person, you could send me a message and be like, yo, where are you going to be? 
and I'll probably talk about it at some point. And there's lots more I want to talk about. There's like so much more that's happened in the industry over the last three months that I've been thinking about. And we launched our Airbnb in February in our basement and that's been a game changer. And it's made me think about like passive income and you know, how can musicians create a sustainable life and still make art. I think about that stuff a ton and the Airbnb has really been a financial game changer for us in terms of just lightening the, just lightening the pressure of having to constantly hustle and see if we can scrape together dollars to pay bills. And I've been rambling a while, but it's been a while. So I'm glad to talk to you and catch up and I hope you're all crushing it and doing well and just having great summer gigs, you know, it's summertime, summer busy. But I also hope that you've got stuff booked into September, October, November, and December as well because that's the lighter season and it's coming. And we got to be ready as musicians. We got to be ready for those months. Okay. Okay. I got my UP accent starting to happen here. Okay, cool. So here's my interview with the great Adam Rappa of Lotus Trumpets. There was like a period of time where you didn't release a lot of, maybe between 2006 and 2018 but between your two records that are on spotify mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it seems yeah uh and like in your bio you're talking about how these opportunities popped up to record and then they didn't manifest that must be that's one of one them. of them <laughs> yeah. for a lot of others i mean the bane of my existence has always been being an artist with lots of ideas and no money to see them through <laughs> you know? yeah anyone with vision I, I feel like probably has that same i mean unless you come from wealth or something right you know it's like that's that same issue like how do you get things funded right so i just basically have been trying to make things happen in conjunction with festivals and there's one, the, the, festival, the Corno Festival in Poland, um, yeah, where I've made, managed to get some really good material out of that. But yeah. even, even still, that's a, it's, been, it's involved a lot of compromise and, and, and a lot of work that... It was just, the job was a lot harder than it should have been sure. because it wasn't just a, a simple session. Everybody comes in and we do the gig and that's it. It's, you know, it's like herding cats throughout the week in rehearsals and then yep. whatever. You know, and it's, then it's in front of an audience. Yeah. So you don't get to go back and go, let's do that again. Were you doing that at all? Were you going like, this is a recording session, we're going to go back and do things again? Nope. It was just like one time. Yep. So yeah. we had to, and the editing was a pain in the butt afterward because, it, you know, live gig, the mics were placed where they kind of needed to be for the live gig, but there was a lot of bleed and phasing issues and stuff. So it was, uh, you know, just to come up with those recordings of Armando's Rumba and the, and the two... Um, Beethoven pieces that we that we released from a couple of years ago. That was it was like seven days of going to war inside of Pro Tools. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just I bet. make that happen, balance all that shit. Yep. Um, so, it was, but that's basically the best thing I've ever gotten out of a, a festival gig. You know, there's a lot, lots of oh, swing and a miss. You know, other places sure. where they promise you the moon and and say, you know, this is oh, that don't worry, our guys can play anything. You know, it's, it's embarrassing the results at the end. It's like, well, okay, so I. Yet another year passed, and I haven't released anything. <laughs> yeah, can't use that. Right, but it's it's definitely changing now because Lotus is doing well enough that there can be a budget for, uh, you know, for me to record music that can be used for promotion, etc. Right. So, so thankfully, finally, we've entered a stage where as soon as I get through my commitments for the summer, I can start really focusing on recording. Yeah. So I was going to ask, like, how do you get from being in a rut like that to? making moves again. I imagine like you felt frustrated that you weren't getting things out, mm-hmm. that those stars weren't aligning. I think probably a lot of musicians are in that place. Mm-hmm. How do you go from being in that rut to to where you are now? Well, it was 
um, to compound the issue, I was also during this whole period I was bouncing around. I lived in a lot of countries. Yeah. You know, or well, um, after leaving Blast in '07, I was in Seattle for a couple of years, and then went to New York for you know, a little less than two years, and I went to Japan for a year and yeah. did a gig with that. My wife at the time and I relocated to Vienna. We were there for a couple of years, and that really did not pan out. So okay, mm. so we moved to Copenhagen for a couple of years. In Vienna, Vienna or Copenhagen? That's where you were when. You did the young blood stuff, is that right? Um, it was a little bit later than that. After okay. Copenhagen, after okay. there, being there for a couple of years, and I played in the Danish radio big band, and I was actually gigging oh, nice. there. It was cool, um, but it was all you know. I, I wasn't a soloist who had. Uh, I, I was you know maybe playing solos in ensembles, but just in that context, I didn't. I didn't have my own thing. Yeah, um, that was also a, a point of frustration. But you know, is it, it was at least a step up, so I was happy there. Whatever. Um, content and um, yeah. but then I split up with my with my wife and and um, and I went to Belgium for a year and then the Netherlands for a few years COVID hit so it was just one series mm. of, of like not only did I not have the money but I also wasn't in a position like most musicians are in where you've got a scene you've got a local scene and you can you know call your people and bring them in and record stuff even if it's for free that wasn't an option on the table either um, yeah. you know and and so it was it was more than just not having the the funding to see artistic projects to fruition it was it was also just like oh my god i'm isolated you know and yeah, and man. so that was that was really tricky and the uh, the solution to all of this is is also pretty complex it's you know i just had to eventually find myself in a in a place where i have community and and i actually don't i still don't i don't have musical community around me but now because again lotus is doing so well that yeah. that now as long as I hit a dealership or you know do a Tupperware party wherever I'm going, sure, the trip will pay for itself. So in a way, I've got kind of an unlimited travel budget. Yep. Um, so that's helping with the geographical <laughs> problem and mm -hmm. just the you know money for travel and and all that. There's so okay, check, and um, and I just needed to also get into a place where I was kind of healthy enough to you know, be centered and to be able to prioritize and, 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 you know, do the, do the work that needed to be done in order to, um, see any kind of project to fruition. It was just kind of, I, I felt like for so long, I was just dodging pies that were flying my way yep. that, you know, yep. just staying afloat, just, you know, making sure that the bills get paid and, and the wheels keep spinning, that, that, that was, that was enough. Um, and a lot of just, well, either self-medicating or, or whatever, sure. just hiding from the world. <laughs> there was sure. a whole, whole bunch of that too. So in order in order to come to this place where I am now, it required the success of Lotus, especially, yep. um, which was a whole lot of hard work, a lot of shit shoveling. Yeah, <laughs> that's I bet. Um, and which took me further away from being an artist. So for a while, I, I knew that I was planting seeds that would eventually turn into something, but it it, it meant a further diversion from, from yeah. where I, what I really wanted to be doing. Um, well, when you're in that place where you're just trying to make bills happen. Mm. I'm going to start a company is a huge idea. Mm -hmm. So like did you go raise money? Did you have designs already? Did you do you have did you have somebody you knew who was a trumpet designer and that you worked with them or something like that? I kind of assumed that we would get to the, the I mean or, I was I was going to ask this later. Yeah, no. But like well, it's it's um it's actually a, a pretty like it was definitely a painful thing to even discuss. It was a really really tumultuous time when um, I didn't intend to make a business. Yeah. It, it began with just my search for an instrument that would that would work for me. For years, I was waiting for Dave Monette to make me something. Right. Um, literally, like three years or more, I was waiting for another horn that wasn't basically a euphonium facing forward. Sure. And. Um, the and I didn't know kind of that I was going to be getting something that was halfway to a low brass instrument when he when he made it. I thought I was commissioning a trumpet, 
but it was something much much bigger. Yeah, he, was it a four valve thing? Four or something? valve, yeah. yeah um, which would have been great, you know, if it was a P3, would have been fine. But it had a flumpet bell on it, you know, yeah, and you could huge. fit a number two pencil down the throat of the mouthpiece. So Jeez. it was it was really really not what I needed for my gigs. And and I and I struggled and I I worked my ass off and and you know made it work for the most part. But that also contributed to my not being able to release bootlegs from gigs that went actually pretty well yeah. because they didn't go that well for me. Right, <laughs> you know, right, totally. Um, so. I was really frustrated with with the situation, and and um, push came to shove. I, uh, this would be really nutshell because it's actually quite a, a sensitive subject. I was yeah. I was my first partner uh, in business completely screwed me over, stole everything, physical property, intellectual property, launched you know as as if I had nothing to do with the process. Oh but, my god! But how the the horns actually began was me working with Andy Taylor. Um, oh okay. Um, Andy, you know, while in, instead of Dave, who you know wouldn't wouldn't do so much as make me a mouthpiece with a reasonable throat size, uh-huh. like literally, his dogma prevented him from saying, "Yeah, sure, even I'll prove you wrong," you know, and, right. and just make you a, a normal throat on your mouthpiece, um, you know, from being completely unsupportive and obstinate with with anything that I wanted outside of what he wanted for me. Um, which isn't so much of a dig. It's like, okay, cool. That's who he is. You know, he fancies himself the Wizard of Oz, and and I'm supposed to. We're all supposed to just play what he wants us to play. But but I, I felt that that wasn't it, of course. So I wanted to go and work with somebody who would make anything. And Andy Taylor's that guy. If you want a you know horn that looks like the Batmobile, he's your guy. Yeah, real sure. Orange County chopper kind huh. of dude. You know, and um, and so I went and and the round one Lotus horns. Actually, it was this was pre Lotus. This was you know a good year and a half before I had a company called Lotus. Sure. We were. Um, uh, I was basically just kind of arranging his compositions, right? Just you know, tweaking, dotting eyes, crossing t's, shaving down weight, and and experimenting with metal placement, and basically just curating what I think are were his best horns, mm-hmm. um, which was really fun. And uh, and it wasn't just Andy; also his right hand man, Matt Martin, was was huge in 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 helping to to see some some cool design elements come to life and the four valve and mm-hmm. and all that stuff and and uh, and it was working great and we basically at the very beginning I put in three or four grand my partner put in three or four grand and we you know had Andy line up a, a table full of horns and you know that you know I said okay so let's do three horns where this is the control you know the controlled experiment except let's change you know the material of the leap or the thickness of this or the whatever right. and um, and once we found um, it's like, okay this is what this this is a thing right here so let's swap out the lead pipe or the bell or whatever it was on the on these other horns make a bunch of the you know a whole round of of this model and um, and I went around and, and was selling stuff you know just to to help pay for the further R&D even the first horns were great because Andy knows what he's doing and, sure. and and I like to think that that my influence in those designs made them even better so they were they were really they were great from the beginning, and, and that made it very easy to, to continue paying for another round of R&D, another round of R&D. I sold like 10 horns before we even officially had a company. Yeah. Um, and w- at, meanwhile, I went to New Hampshire, uh, opened up an LLC, because no sales tax in, in New Hampshire. Okay. Um, worked with Mark Schwartz, who's kind of like, he's a trumpet player, and uh, the accountant to the stars. He's Arturo's accountant, Herb Alpert. He was Ziggy Canstall's wow. accountant. He's here. You Actually, in music business, you should definitely talk to Mark. Yeah, cool. And... Um, uh, we worked out an operating agreement. He was also it went to law school, so accountant slash lawyer. Yep. And uh, worked everything out. And of course, just before we went to launch, my uh, partner kind of threw a grenade in the room and and refused to sign the operating agreement and just like completely pulled the rug out from under 
um, which was definitely a major setback. Yeah, <laughs> he, like, stuck a lawyer on me. He was like, ugly. so this is the partner that also threw in three or four thousand dollars to start the research and development yeah, on the which was the the, the the extent of his contribution. He was otherwise a fly on the wall. Um, but it, all of a sudden, here I am, like without my company, my designs, my you know, it was like, wow, this is this was out. This was super out. Yeah, um, and he. You know, it, 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 ugly in a way that I'd never experienced in my life. I'd never, I'd never been um, <clears throat> betrayed by anybody, really. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was that was huge, and um, and it took a little while to recover from because first I had to dig myself out of out of or like you know, just basically deflect his accusations and lawyer up and 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 yeah. all that. And and I finally got to relax. My my wife at the time and I um, reverse engineered the expenses. I was I never want to be the money guy. Like and if you want more detailed information about how Lotus runs and all that, just sure. talk to Henrik because yeah, okay. I just I, you know something's got to give. I can't. I, I, yeah, totally. I just man. can't do it. Um, but I uh, my partner was the one that was handling the money and he just boldface lied about where the money went and you know saying that I was stealing money etc. So we had to sort of reverse engineer how it all went down because at least I knew what I had sold how many horns for and could right. you know and <clears throat> interviewing Andy and like reverse engineering the costs to him etc. Mm. and. And uh, long story short, got my lawyer to to send a, a you know, have a conversation with his lawyer. His lawyer backed off immediately. He was like, "Oh, okay, you know." Yeah. Um, and I, I I know that statute of limitations mean that means that really he's he's still in a precarious situation. Eventually, he's going to owe me half of everything he's ever sold. Wow. Because um, he's still selling. Um, <clears throat> wow. And I want to I want to be I, I want to be really careful about how and when I really you know make noise about this because yeah, totally. because it's such a sensitive topic you know like it's it, it will end in arbitration one day. Man. You know, it was just like such a shame. That's to, ugly, you know, yeah. it really and and, um, and I of course I knew he was a shark, but I thought, well, I'm a care bear. I probably need a shark of my own. You know, sure. but I didn't think there is a thing about building a team around you and finding people that do what you don't do. And right. Like you talking about with the money thing, it's like you got to find something that does the money thing so that you don't have to do that. Exactly. And um, but once I I got clear and and could start focusing on okay moving forward, um, this is when it gets really beautiful and just fills me with gratitude. So. Um, Andy knew that I had gotten screwed over, and the valve block maker, Meinl Schmidt, knew that that I was getting screwed over, and and they basically floated. And so, and and Henrik was a student of mine uh, who had sought me out while I was living in Vienna. Flew, you know, took lessons. Really devoted um, mm. person, and 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 he's interesting because he's not a shark at all. He's a bigger care bear than I am, but yeah. he's also a numbers guy. He was a competitive chess player as a kid. You know, just like the the right. Left-brained sort of mindset totally. for um, for that, and also heart in the right place comes from a great family. It's just Henrik's a beautiful person, so so that was kind of an obvious choice. It's like, ah, I need somebody like this. Okay, so the two of us um, planned, charted a course forward. Meinl Schmidt floated us ten blocks at over eight hundred euros a piece, mm. and Andy floated us ten builds. So wow. that got us like that's how Lotus started. Was, okay, you know, by the good graces of the people who knew that I was in it for the right reasons and I was doing good work, and uh, so so, so this yeah. was like we'll give you materials, sell the horns, and and then pay us later. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, and and it worked instantly. We were up and running. We we had been hand to mouth for you know for some years, even yep. even years after that. Um, waiting for payments to come in so we could buy enough stuff to build the next horns. You know, it was totally. It was. Um, it was really. Yeah, and, and that was happening. Andy was doing the building for for some years, and um, and it, as far as mouthpieces go, we we started working with Egger in Switzerland, and that was that was on Charlie. That was a, a recommendation from Charlie, okay. which worked out great. 
um, because those guys really, you know, it's an amazing team and they're doing great work. So it was really easy to to go in there and collaborate in terms of like and, and come up with something really new. Um, and I, it, in the beginning, it took a lot of. Well, it wasn't actually all that easy in the beginning because they didn't necessarily believe me when I or or, or trust that what I wanted them to do was going to be better because right. it was unconventional. And um, and so in the end, I ended up getting or not in the end, but uh, eventually, I sort of earned the trust of of okay, you know, it may not be something we've ever done before, but let's do it for them. And and uh, they almost I, I think had disbelief about about the the end result until we started ordering way more mouthpieces that they could produce. We got an investor who who came in with a couple hundred grand okay. and allowed us to get ahead of of orders and make large purchase orders of of rods and tubes and you know and everything we needed. And um, and that that really began a change when when we could actually flex a little bit and and you know. We're um, we're still at least we're not hand to mouth now, but we're we're still keeping the money inside of the company, keeping it growing. We just bought another lathe so we can double our mouthpiece output, which wow. will help a lot. Um, eventually, we're going to need a machine that costs half a million bucks, though, in order to to continue making Dang. things that that we're not making yet that we'd like to. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's you know lots of axes on that lathe that we're going to need, and um, so it's still it's by no means a cash cow for any of us but it, it the sales are actually going really well so yeah. so we at least we can we can chart a course based on what we want to do not just what we're stuck with being able to do you know with, with far fewer options than than we like so you know i don't know any other I'm trying to think of another trumpet company that's run by like a real trumpet player mm. that like really can play and it's like you're like a virtuoso trumpeter and now you've designed your own horns. I mean, I think that's a pretty unique avenue that you've that yeah. you have here. Yeah, right? it was, um, again, it wasn't, it, I didn't even plan this for myself. It was really just first things first, how do I get myself the horn that I need? Right. And then it turned, it quickly became, wow, everybody else is into this too. Okay, well, I guess there's a thing here. And um, and it was more just of a passion project in the beginning. So I, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't expect it to be, you know, had no aspirations to, um, to for it to be a business. You yeah. know, I figured, it's interesting because like what, seeing your, I mean, whoever's doing your social media is doing an awesome job, and like they are. the intersection between what you do as a trumpeter and like being able to also promote your company, and at the same time, it's like seems like there's a real nice intersectionality there. Yeah, where it's like here's me doing my, you're teaching, you're playing, you're, uh, you know, they're they're also posting stuff you're doing with orchestras and things mm -hmm. in other countries. But yeah, like what a cool intersection between running a business. Starting a thing that actually feeds this thing that you yeah. do artistically. Yeah. Eventually, I hope to have the same kind of situation as like Terrence Blanchard, where the soundtrack money helps fund the the, the tours of, of small groups. You yes. Know, I I really appreciate the content that we put out most. That's where I'm, I'm helping somebody because that's that's really the the extra unforeseen fringe benefit of being in this position yep. with Lotus is that wherever we go, it's not just about selling mouthpieces and stuff, you know, like it's the, the job the, my real job is, is to just teach and teach people how to play the equipment better, mm -hmm. you know, cause most people's muscle memory is programmed to compensate for problems with the gear. Right. So it, not everybody figures it out right in the beginning when they're playing. They don't even, you know, they don't notice because they're playing too high in the pitch in the upper register. You know, a lot of the, the benefits don't automatically reveal themselves from yeah. the beginning. So so I need to, you know, guide people through that process of feeling more relaxed and, and being able to access the <clears throat> the greater, the higher levels of, of achievement that you can, you can have with the instruments. So it's still a teaching gig, yeah. you know, in right. a way. <clears throat> and 
and I'm really, really careful and, and conscious of not wanting to sully my reputation as an educator by turning it into just a sales event. Because that's kind of what it normally is, right? You've got players that are endorsing a brand mm -hmm. and who, you know, peddle their wares on, you know, on master classes. And, yep. and master classes, the answer to this kid's, you know, the way that they're playing is by, by my mouthpiece, you know, right. which I'm not into. I, you know, I get it. I, I understand, you know, and there are ethical ways of doing it. I'm sure somebody does. But um, but in in my case, like I really try to keep those two things separated. Yeah. And um, and if I'm at a festival where they want me to do a master class and also a Lotus demo, those two things don't happen at the same time. Okay. Um, really got to try to not cross those streams <clears throat> because it's already hard enough. People assume that you know some people assume that this is just some kind of cash grab on right. my part that that right. it's just snake oil. And and others don't even know that it's my company. They think I'm just doing for Lotus what I do for what I did for Monet. Right. Just be a, a good poster boy. Right. It, People are cynical, the, man. Yeah. People are cynical. That's too bad. And so I, I at least shouldn't give them any more fuel on the fire. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so well, I want to go back in time a little bit. You mm. you toured with Blast, eight years. Seven. Seven yeah. years. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a wildly physical show. Yeah. In addition to just trumpet being a physical. You know, beast to play. It's like you're also doing boatloads of movement on stage. It's yeah. uh, so I, I want to talk about two things here. Let's talk a little bit about health and wellness. So, like mm. your experiences with Blast. Uh, you know, you're working with a a, a physical therapist or physical therapist was on yeah. tour with you. Yeah. Um, how, how did that experience impact how you handle health and wellness surrounding life, surrounding trumpet playing? Being in Blast was was huge, not just for training with a physical therapist or having somebody to sort of <laughs> help me deal with my neck and shoulder tension, yeah. um, but in general, just I I do a much better job when I'm within a community in terms of like being holding myself accountable to to working out, and sure. having a steady yoga practice and all that. It's it's a lot easier for me to do that with others, mm -hmm. um, especially historically. Now I'm a little bit more, you know, I I, I fit it in. I, I don't necessarily need the the extra kick in the butt, but back in that in the day, it really felt like I needed that sense of community in order to, you know, be as healthy as I could be. Um, and we were helping lift each other up, and there mm -hmm. were lots of health-conscious people. And, and you know, we were trying to. Some of us were, were trying not to eat junk food. You know, we were, you know, you finish the, the the evening show, and there's nothing but Domino's open in this right. you know, in this town, whatever. And um, so it was it was just something that where we were we were all a support group for each other in that regard. Um, I had a really serious injury while I was on tour in 2003 uh, that led me to just the process of trying to get well again got me much more heavily into yoga and 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 oste seeing an osteopath and, and just doing you know searching for for solutions Reiki everything you know I was just were you like, able to play while recovering yeah but I wasn't able to move the way that I was doing before you know I couldn't touch my toes for a while wow which was bizarre uh, yeah that took a long time to resolve itself but it also taught me an even greater level of efficiency while I was on the you know because I I made it look good I just didn't, sure. didn't go you know bonkers but I, I did the at least the bare minimum at least the bare minimum of, and, and could do the movement but you know the more acting jump bouncing around acting like a fool um, in the officer Krupke you know in, in the yep. in the goofball moment you know I just yep. had to chill out a little bit but um, but I was for a long time I had a steady yoga practice and, and was doing a lot of trumpet practicing and definitely being mindful of my diet then when we got to Japan you know, extra challenges came up, like all of a sudden, a week into our, uh, the, the first year that I was there, a whole bunch of us, one week, two weeks in, were just 
noticing like, my God, my lips are getting so swollen. I feel like I get these sausages on my face. What the hell is this? And uh, a little bit of, of sleuthing, and we realized that it was the sodium content in the food. Wow. And we were retaining water. Yeah, a lot of salt. So, it's like, yeah. so thankfully we fixed that and, and could get away from popping ibuprofen-like Pez. Yeah, and, <laughs> which is yeah, a thing. been there, man. And uh, you know, and I, I experimented with being a vegetarian or at least pescatarian while I was on tour, and that really didn't work out very well for me because I kind of felt like I was always behind the eight ball. Like there wasn't enough time to recover from the the what my face had had to do the the day before. Right. And then I, you know, so I sort of found a balance where I was vegetarian enough, <laughs> to, you know, to you know, and 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 still follow the cravings when they when when they were screaming. And, sure. And you know, that that was it was just it was it was a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. And I got a lot of practicing in. And some folks took more advan advantage of just being able to sightsee in cities and stuff. And I I, I spent a lot of time more kind of introverted and and eating my Wheaties, you know, doing, sure. doing the work, yeah. which was great. And and you, you mentioned that it was like, because you're playing the same show every single day for, you know, maybe thousands of times, right? Yeah. You're able to kind of treat that as your control and yeah. then you can mess around and see how effective what you're doing totally. is. Totally. How much practicing I did before Such the gig cool versus after the gig, you know, yeah. it was, it was a, a, a very consistent test of you know, a real put up or shut up situation. It's like, all right, you do whatever you're, you can choose whatever path you want in terms of how many hours a day you practice and whether you take care of yourself or not. And really the only test that mattered is, and how'd the show go? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that was, that was really, really helpful. It also in general just got me to play in a much more efficient way. I was, I was playing my ass off and playing high notes and stuff years before in, in drum corps, which yep. I also did for seven years. Right. Um, but it was, it wasn't nearly efficient enough for me to feel comfortable, for me to feel safe in Blast. After mm -hmm. some time, it just kind of felt like my chops were just getting a little tighter and a little tighter. And, sure. you know, one of these days, Something's I'm just, you know, yeah, <laughs> that note isn't going to come out. You know, and there was there was an extra drama built into the test for me because I had unaccompanied solo time in the show. Uh -huh. It was just me. And it was like this gag about, you know, I'm taking an extended cadenza and, and the so-called big band is about to come in, I cue them, but then yeah, yeah, cut yeah, them yeah. off, and, <laughs> and, and then it had to end, no, no matter what, it had to end on a big ta-da, double G. Okay. And I really felt like I was getting closer and closer to just, you know, shooting blanks on that. So so I started really investing in becoming more efficient with my with my technique, and that's yeah. what made me change from, as I described, being a shitter to being a pisser. Sure. You know, and um, and it was really just because I felt like I had no choice. And I, of course, who the hell wants to change their technique unless they feel like they have no choice? Right. Uh, so right. I'm really glad that that, you know, that Blast was the hardest show that I've ever heard of for anybody. And you guys took acting classes, right? Like, how, how is acting, like taking acting classes, doing that show? How has that shaped what you've done in non-blast contexts in the, the, you know, the creative, artistic music? That yeah, that's a great question. It's, sure. And it was dance classes and as well. Okay. So we were taking and 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 the very beginning of our training, we're talking like a two-hour, three-hour acting class or wow. dance class. You know, we got long, good quality time. Yeah. Uh, in the case of the acting, it was with George Pinney, who was the head of the acting department or drama department at IU. Uh, okay. At the time, so and he's it's just a brilliant man, really a genius, and um, and what the acting classes did was bring people out of their shells, you know. And George was always playing the fool, like the he was so crazy and asked us to go so far 
that you know most people only took baby steps in that direction, but it was still enough to get them to come out of their shells. Right. You know, and um, and it was great because a lot of musicians really hide behind the horns and and, yep. and don't think of it, don't see themselves from the outside, and don't perceive what they're projecting. And mm-hmm. and George opened us all up. Right. And during that time when we were performing in Disney, you know, Land of Make Believe brought us out into the audience, and we were goofing around with the with people. And I was, you know, proposing marriage to old ladies and stuff. You know, it was sure. like just super fun. And and that experience really got us. I mean, it made it blatantly obvious what the gig really is, which is to connect, to look, see, and be seen, as as George, right. would, you know, a quote of his. And um and that. That made all the difference, and a lot of people also slimmed down big time uh, huh. for it. And and basically, we were we were provided with with healthy challenges to rise to, and um and and the acting classes were were really really fun, and it's things that I that I still do with groups, um you know like walking around in some kind of blobby amoeba, um just looking looking at each other, just walking around, just you know just. I'm drawing <laughs> with my hands. I'm yes, drawing uh, movements that your audience cannot hear. Yeah, so. um, but it was basically just walk around and look at each other with one particular intention, and it would be an intention that was matched up with one of the songs. Uh, so Appalachian Spring, we walk around with like "I love you" on our on our face, you know, really communi- open opening our hearts and, and yeah. communicating that, and then we get to Medea, which is like. I'm gonna, you, you after I do, you know, and 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 then Malaganya is, you know, if if looks could impregnate, you know, and yeah, and so sure. there was a lot of that, like exploring not just openness in general, but openness with a, within a particular wide range of of the emotional spectrum, right? And uh, and that just the the implications of that is there's no going back, there's no forgetting what it means to be open, what it feels like to be open. Hmm. And um, and I still, to this day, I keep it turned way down, you know, my personal energy on stage than, than what we were doing in Blast, just because, well, number one, I don't want to be kind of a caricature of, uh, on stage. Right. You know, we, we're a little bit over the top, of course, in that in that show, because that's and what it needed to be. be yeah. Yeah. Because we still had horns on our faces. So a lot of, in the end, what, what we were putting out there to the audience was just with our eyes. Mm-hmm. And and with the body language. You know, Louis Armstrong, mm-hmm. with the eyes, yeah. man, he was always, yeah. you know. Dizzy, you know, you can see yeah. when, when people mm-hmm. have... When you can you can just see that presence on people's faces when they when they've really got it, but still in a way I mean maybe because of some of the places that I've lived and the gigs that I've had I just it's been most appropriate to turn the lights down a little bit sure and um, and be you know present more humbly. And Did you ever deal with performance anxiety in the early days? No, I mean literally as as a as a fifteen year old you know like, yeah. but uh, with drum corps I, my first year of drum corps I was fourteen by the time we were fifteen. We were we were down in in Florida for the the big um, finals, whatever. And we were performing for tens of thousands of people, yeah. you know. And that was okay. So that was unnerving a little bit, but that was, that was 15, 16, You know, it was just a couple times, you know. And sure. I didn't have the nervousness of auditions either. I auditioned for very few things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was only in school till I was sixteen, so I only you know auditioned for Allstate a couple of times. The second time wasn't even an audition. It was I sat I entered the room and they were like, "Okay, so good to see you. Yeah. Here's what we're doing: tribute to Clifford Brown, uh-huh. yeah. um, and it's going to be you're going to have great fun." So I I don't even I haven't even really participated in that world either. So I've right. been allowed to basically circumvent the the whole fear factor involved in. in so to what do you attribute the ability to perform with? That kind of confidence, with, without that like 
nagging self-doubt that mm -hmm. a lot of musicians deal with? Um, well, the first thing is just acknowledging, the most important thing is acknowledging that self-sabotage is, is going to be the, your, your biggest problem. Mm. You know, that, that it's, nobody else is, has the potential to screw you up on stage like you do. Right. And that self-sabotage will obviously be fueled by self-doubt. So if you're doubting whether or not it's going to go well, the most important thing to do is not self-sabotage, is, is, is not, not make it a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um, and that involves mostly, it, it, for some people it's fake it till you make it. It's, you might be shitting your pants with fear, but carry yourself with superhero posture. Right. Keep your chest open. You know, like do do the things that will at least, even if you're mentally or emotionally suffering, that at least will keep the ball rolling physically. Right. Because it's that, it's that, you know, once you get into fight or flight, to the degree that that impacts the way you're using your body, and all of a sudden the muscle memory that you've developed in the practice room of how to play this piece and where the breaths happen, all of a sudden this stuff gets really screwed up because you're taking shallow breaths now and you know breaking phrases where they weren't being broken before. Right. You know, the, it's it's and it's your own damn fault mm -hmm. <laughs> if it happens. Yeah. So, so you really just have to, um, at, if nothing else, keep control over your body. Um, but in my case, I mean, obviously it helps that I've been really good for really long. You know, like yeah. I, I don't, I don't have self doubt because my my mom gave me self confidence from yeah. the time I was a toddler. Yeah, and, um, and she sang with you a lot. Yeah, yeah. Sandra, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, with that self confidence, even before I started playing the trumpet, and then have, being blessed with a, having a great teacher when I was young, and right. and and you know, being way more, you know, playing way more trumpet than anybody my age group that I knew about, mm. you know, in anywhere within the radius that I was aware of at the time, um, you know, that, that helped for me to just feel, you know, a sense of confidence that this is going to go pretty well, you know, right, right. and, um, and that sort of, then I did have problems that I needed, that I needed to work through that weren't stage fright, but that were other kind of problems involving ego and, um, and survival instinct and all mm -hmm. that. And that was that every time that I had a great performance in Blast, Typically, the next show would be, you know, would be bullshit, you know. And and I guess what I'm talking about is is the solo, is everybody loves the blues. That moment where where I got to improvise, yep, and, yep. and you know, my audio memory is pretty good. So I I would find myself on stage performing, say, Sunday matinee after a great Saturday night performance, mm -hmm. remembering or listening to what I played last yep. night, and then trying and, to recreate yeah, it, yeah, and just than... getting into this awful feedback yep. loop where yep. I was judging what was coming out of the bell even before it came out. Yeah, man, and, I've uh, totally been there. So then I got hip to Kenny Werner and Effortless Mastery, yep, I've read also it a times. Free Play by Stephen Nachmanovich. I have not read that. Great one. Free Play is is a great book, yeah. and um, and it addresses that that X factor that is just who are you and what are you know and 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 how are you projecting that how well how honestly are you projecting that right and um that helped me to get over that hurdle and to just basically arrive at a place of complete equanimity you know where basically my and and i don't know is profanity allowed yes yeah. oh, okay yeah. great so <laughs> the two-word philosophy that i've lived by for a long time is just fuck it you know and it's something that i actually feel like i'm expressing physically before i play i just take a breath Okay, here we go. You yeah, know, and yeah. and if there for anybody, I recommend if there's any doubt in your mind, if you feel it, if you're like, oh shit, here we go, bracing for impact. First of all, try to take that breath before you enter fairly early. You know, with a couple of bars in advance, so that you can throw away a breath and just <sighs> sure take another breath and now come in. But there's just got to be some kind of <sighs> shake it out yeah. that happens, whether it's physically shaking or just just saying to yourself, well, fuck it, here we go. Um, an expansion on on that two word philosophy that's so helpful is basically like 
this could turn out to be a horrible note or a horrible phrase or a horrible gig, but either way, you know, the best chance I've got is just chilling out and committing yeah, to what's most important, which is not thinking about myself, but thinking about you, the audience. And, and you know, as long as you can turn your focus to towards making sure that everybody feels great and is inspired and having a good time, then it, it and they will forgive you, and knowing that they will forgive you for a lot of crack notes and a whole bunch of bullshit that yep. could happen, as long as you are there to serve them. Right. Um, that's, you know, that can be another shield from feeling attacked as well. You know, just commit yeah. your, you know, if your ego is feeling threatened, then tell your ego to, you know, go somewhere else and have a coffee because you're just here to, to serve other people. Mm. It all ends up contributing to feeling much more comfortable. Yeah. Uh, I feel like intent, sincerity, all have such a huge factor, play a huge role in how the audience hears the music and experiences the music and yeah. when it's happening in real time. Yeah. You know, and, and we like, have strong you can get away honors. with a lot of crack notes or whatever. Yep. You know, I think about like great free jazz groups that like had really captive audiences and it's like, why do, why are people into this? And it's like, well, there's this real deep sincerity behind the music. Absolutely. You know, and people can feel that on a subconscious level. Non-musicians right. can tell the difference between right. somebody who's just dialing it in or, or phoning it in or, or, or actually, you know, there to connect, you right. know, and, and for, you know, intending for this music to be the soundtrack to their emotional experience, you know. Yeah. And um, and so that's that's basically all all that there is to it. That's that's I don't know how easily this translates for people who have who are dealing with performance anxiety or you know a, a you know stage fright <clears throat> you know, to, on, on a more extreme level. Yep. But ba but whether it's easy to understand and assimilate or not, the the very simple truth is it's not about you. Mm. <laughs> you know, and as long as you can get the hell out of your own way and serve the people, then um, then you'll be fine. It'll 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 be okay. Um, and that, that has implications with, well, wh which music do you choose to play? And why are you choosing to play that tune? You know, right. what are you saying with this piece? You know, and, and I've tried to find a, a nice healthy balance between playing stuff that's really pyrotechnic, that's, that's, you know, that's showcasing virtuosity, but in a way that's also musically valid. You know, in a way, totally. you know, not to, you know, call other music invalid per se, but, you know, when the music is about nothing more than demonstrating the virtuosity of the, of the performance or the composition or whatever, then it, it usually it leaves people feeling like something's missing. Sure. Unless those people aren't necessarily developed intellectually enough to appreciate that there's something more waiting for them somewhere else. You know, right. you know it's like, just listen to Herbie and Wayne and, and, and get a sense of what it really means to be in honest communication with people. Mm -hmm. And that's just a, it's almost a different activity altogether from performing a concerto that sounds like the soundtrack to somebody's really anxious day. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of performers performing stuff that I wonder, like, are, it, it, has there been any thought put into how you want me to feel when I'm sitting in the audience? Right. <laughs> right. You know, um, so it's the, the intention is, is the fun part. What is your intention is, is a test of, like, who are you? Not as a musician, but as a person. As a person. And what are we going to do? Like, what are you going to do with all this technique? Right. And, um, and I, I hope that, that people leave really feeling juiced up, feeling inspired, yeah. And, and, and like truly inspired, you know, not, not just lip service, but like that people want to go home and figure some stuff out and, or, yeah. or commit themselves to listening to something outside of their own stylistic box or whatever as a result of seeing what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, and, and it, I guess the, the worst feedback that I ever get, the worst comments, which are meant to be compliments, 
is, man, you scare the shit out of me. I just, I, you make me want to hang up the horn. It's like, man, <laughs> it should be the opposite. You know? man, run to the practice room. <laughs> right. Um, you know, whatever. You do what you can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So what do you have coming up? Like, what uh, in terms of musical projects, we've talked a lot about Lotus. Like, hmm. it feels to me like something big is coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's just, like, based on hearing you play and just, like, the range of what you can do, uh, and then hearing you talk about connecting with audiences and making music and honesty and music and yeah. So so what's are you planning something right yeah, now? Big time. It's twofold. Um, on the performance side of things, it, I did a lot of writing during COVID. That was one of the things. You know, music was just pouring out of me. Or yeah. or also. Um, I came to greater clarity about how to work with material that I had, you know, semi-recorded, you know, partially recorded years before, like that that project we were talking about, um, maybe before we started recording but, yeah. you know, this this interview. But sure. you know, there's some stuff that dates back to 2008, or compositions that go even further back that still have never been flushed out. Um, I came to a greater understanding of what I actually want to do with that, and mm -hmm. clarity about about how that can go. <clears throat> and so the the I've got a mind node list that's just got a whole bunch of main nodes with you know a whole bunch of you know uh, what do you call that like branches connecting with a huge list of songs and references and blah blah blah. You know it's it's quite a a, a master plan like a a mind palace really sure, yeah. of of plans. You know with this kind of ensemble with this instrumentation. I'd like to record all these things, blah, blah, blah. With this instrumentation, it's this. For, for this festival, it's going to be this. You know, I, I keep track of things that way. And, um, and the list of things that I'm going to record is, you know, it always grows. And, but at this point, I know that coming into the fall and the winter, I'm going to have the budget to actually be able to start really, you know, checking some of those boxes. Awesome. And a lot of that involves starting by recording multi-tracking myself you know doing doing a whole bunch of like on my first record i recorded poopy pants blues in a way where it was just kind of improvisation frozen in time mm. uh, when i recorded something it was like oh that's a nice phrase okay cool save keep that and now let me let me you know instantly come up with a background for that and right. so i'm going to be doing some of that with thematic material that's i think that's enough to that all i need to do is just do go through that same exact process to finish the composition. So sure. some of that stuff, and and um and I'll definitely be hiring a rhythm section and some some more brass, and and I'll I'll just really start producing. That content is artistic content is is where where my heart is right now because I feel like artistically constipated. <laughs> just yeah, like sure. there's so much good stuff in in a in a wide range of genres as well. So it's that's going to be the tricky thing to navigate is sort of my my ADD. Uh, ever shifting desire for this thing to be my point of focus. I want to record this song or focus on this sound. And now, you know, next week it's something else. And and it's a little bit tricky to to follow all the way through and and you know just see one project uh, yeah, to the end. But definitely. but um, I'll and for that reason, I'll just work on singles. You know, and just sure. just not commit myself to to a full album of any particular concept or sound or right. whatever and just throw a bunch of stuff out there and see what really sticks and and let maybe let the people my audience decide what they want to see, you know where maybe what I'll record next sure. so there's that and and that's that's long it's a fun time way of thinking of it too involve involve people involve people that are going to be listening to your music and yeah in the process a little and, bit and and I, I feel like it'll be helpful to to release a whole bunch of stuff that's well produced and and high quality and attention grabbing in in a wide 
array of styles because still I'm pretty typecast with a bunch of people. You know, like yeah. some people know me just as like a high note monkey, and others, mm -hmm. you know, you know. So it's yeah. it's really tricky. I don't fall into an easy box, and so I'm sort of disregarded. I think in a lot of cases. But the Not, more you record and release things, exactly. the more yeah, you as an artist is defined. Right, and we'll know, see or undefined. We'll see which which flavors end up appealing to the most people and and that's not to say that that my art will always just be a reflection of what people want because that that becomes that, <laughs> anti-art yeah, um, totally. but because there's such a wide buffet available of, of styles and, and instrumentations and whatever um, that I, I might as well just let people you know take requests right sure um, so there's that and then the the other thing of course there's always this is Separate from just Lotus. Lotus, I'm, I'm always going to participate in whatever capacity I'm needed for for designing new stuff. And you know, once we get to the next level in terms of being able to produce more stuff, we'll work on flugelhorn and cornet. We've yeah. got a piccolo prototype, but there's still more work to be done there. Cool. Um, you know, so whatever whatever's needed, I'll do it. You know, but in general, I'm going to try not traveling all that much. Maybe one week max per month whether it's a, a Lotus travel or a gig. And if I have one, I'm not going to do the other. Sure. I really want to be at home a lot more and, and mm. just focus on production. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But the other main branch of, of my attention is going to go towards uh, creating an educational website that's it's going to be pretty big. It's already the, the amount of content that I've got is, is pretty big. And yeah. I've got, um, recording exercises with folks, uh, recording longer form interviews with with trumpet players and recording our practice together recording our recording session you know to to have kind of troubleshooting tips to farm things out like that and cool and um, it's my intention to make sure that people who are sort of socially isolated also have access to to the information that they need in order to succeed you know something to compensate for a lack of community which has become much more of a problem i think in the era of covid you know totally. and um and it's still kind of continuing on and and in the states it seems like there are fewer bands now than ever uh yeah. so there a lot more people need a scene that just doesn't exist around them and if you don't know you don't know you know whatever right. whatever we're talking about so i hope to provide a wide uh, array of educational topics, you know, that well curated, not just um, content of my own, but from you know other other cats, you know, whether it's Brandon Rydenow or Miroslav Petkov or or Ashlyn Parker, or, you know, whoever. Yeah. Um, it's it's really important to me that 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 I take the role of curator because you know I'm a bit. Well, of course, I'm opinionated. I'm an artist. I'm opinionated yep. about about who I think has good information you know better than good you know really this is the guy you should be talking to mm -hmm. about this about you know being a, a freelance classical trumpet player who's also you know just you know just people totally. who are who are doing it successfully and staying healthy and happy and who mm -hmm. are lifting up their students you know i, I really want to be in a position to shine a spotlight on them and and cool. bring that all together in a in a website that really gamifies the process of of getting there step by step towards whatever you're looking for, so that's initially being funded by or by Lotus. But of course, when when that business is up and running, it'll pay back Lotus and, and just be self-sustaining. Sure. sure. The Trumpet Academy is is what it is, and and I also already own the websites for the Sax Academy, the Low Brass Academy, the Woodwind Academy. You know, a, wow. lot, a lot of that stuff. Percussion Academy, Conductors big, Academy. Big picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I've already got friends and colleagues lined up to provide the content. 
for those other instruments that'll fit within roughly wow, the same system, um, where it'll be a website and an app, and it's all it's coming. It's we're cool. we're pretty deep into it now. I've been threatening to do it for years, but again, life getting in the way. Sure, uh, you know, just as it's Good gotten in the way of my recording, too, man. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a long journey. And now, uh, and it also took a little bit of time for for the right people to fall in place. Like now, Sam, our, our video guy, is fantastic, yeah. and. Now I just having him on board, I I feel a lot more comfortable about it getting done <laughs> because sure. there's just there's way too much for me to do alone, and I'm not willing to commit myself full time to you know running an educational website. That's not where I'm at. And it's the same as I'm not willing to commit to being a professor at a university anyway. Sure. Yep. Um, so we've got a great team, and it's as long as I can delegate what needs to be delegated, then then I know that a project can move forward. Um, so it's yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening, and cool. and I've already been recording a bunch of content and piggybacking off of Lotus Travel and recording the inter the interviews and yeah and um and, and yeah it's it's going really well. So the the next year, if we were to have a conversation a year from now, yeah. it would be a very very different one. You know, we'd sure. be reflecting on lots of new stuff. Um, cool. And hopefully we can do that. Let's do it again. Then. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Definitely. It's um, thank you for for what you're doing and and shining a spotlight. On those of us who are trying to do something new and or yeah. interesting or innovative in, in terms of monetizing the the work that we do in in a way that's that's actually helpful, beneficial to other people. Yeah, um, it's I love it. I love the and I love coming to ITG and and knowing that okay, so the sales that that's that's going to happen no matter what. Like mm -hmm. we've already sold a whole bunch of horns and a bunch of mouthpieces, and right. and, and so that's because that's guaranteed because the quality of the of the, I mean the, the instruments sell themselves. I can really just focus on helping people. Like re, for real, you know, we we got people signing up for twenty minutes slots or fifteen minutes slots, and and it's just okay. Hey, what's your name? What do you need? You know, what are you into? What what sure. you know? What what's you know, why are you looking for another mouthpiece or another horn? Big picture. What do you What do you need? Um, and and just helping some of those. You know, some some kids I find are are generally wandering around, kind of sleepwalking. You know, pretty clueless and don't have an opinion. Right. Which is really strange. Don't have a concept. Right. Which is really hard for me to understand because everybody I know who's an artist has always been an artist. Has always been you know opinionated about what they what their sound should be, you know, who the best players are, or at least, you know, who they respect the most, who's who's playing matches their their voice the most and yep. and, you know, seeking out all the information on our own to, you know, to to continue to grow individually. I, I see a lot of people walking around, they seem to be more dependent on their professors, uh, or or, you know, someone uh, to tell them what to do and how to do it and, and, you know, just seeing some Kind of fish eyes when I ask, you know, do, could you tell the difference between those two things? Uh, a little. It's like, well, which one do you prefer? And they look over there at their professor, yep. who's also sitting in the room yep. watching them, you know, asking, like, I don't know, which one do I like better? Yeah. It's like, come on, you know, like, that's a little, and, and those people really need help. You know, they, they, sure. you know they, they need to have that spark turned on or, um, or to simply have someone sit down with them and say, look, Johnny or Susie, what, what what are you really into? Like, what do you what do you nerd out? What, what are the what are the rabbit holes you go down on YouTube when you know when you go home? Yep. What's that? Maybe you might want to focus on that, unless you're planning on going back to college again to you know figure out something that's actually going to work as a career for you. Right. Because uh, you're you're late to the party. Yeah. Right? yeah, you know, yeah. There's there's some of that that needs to happen as well, um, which is a sense more you know tricky topic to. To cover with folks, but I try in in subtle ways to to um, to help 
get people thinking about actually following their passions or, or yeah. taking their passion more seriously in case they just didn't know how much homework really comes along with that. Right. Uh, but then there's other people who are just who just need one little, you know, like, hey, have you thought about putting your air, you know, sending your air further forward, up, you know, further upward when you're playing low notes? Oh my God, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Moments like that, you know, where that that's really gratifying to when when I've got that 20 minutes and I try to make the most of it and, and make it as valuable as possible for them. That's a that's a really fun part of this and just wandering around and you know dishing out hugs and you know just being a you know, just being present and, totally. and that's, these kind of events are really cool. They're super draining and I need some recovery time afterward, yep. but it's really, really cool getting to just be a Swiss army knife and, and, and have a conversation with, with somebody on a purely emotional level, on a psychological level, you know, on a, whatever, whatever they need. You yep. know? Sweet. Well, we're going to link Lotus. We're going to link your socials and stuff mm. in the description, the show notes. That's it, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure. It was awesome. Hey, thanks for listening to my conversation with Adam Rappa. If you dig the show, follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Usually that's a plus sign at the top right-hand side of your podcast app. That way you won't miss any other great episodes of How Musicians Make It. Our theme music was written by me, and you can find links to that in the description, in addition to all the links related to Adam Rappa and Lotus Trumpets. If you have a topic you'd like me to talk about, or just any general questions, you can email adam at gigbossapp.com. I'll see you on the next one.